If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing our series through the Lord's Prayer. Tremendous opportunity to learn how to pray. And that's why the prayer is given, because the disciples asked the Lord Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gave this wonderful prayer. So we're going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and uh, just give a little bit of context before we get into the prayer itself. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Uh, terrible, eh? Spend all that time and effort praying, and that's the only reward you get. Some guy taps you on the back and says, well done, lovely. And that's it. And uh, Jesus has something much more rewarding for us if we can avoid that kind of self-righteousness. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Notice the repeated use of the term Father. Andy introduced this theme last week. Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. My privilege today to look at that second phrase in this great prayer, hallowed be your name. The word hallow is almost never used in modern English. Have you noticed that? The term really occurs really just in two contexts that I can think of. One is it's a traditional name for Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. Uh, and probably the most uh, recent well-known occurrence is in the final Harry Potter book and the two films, The Deathly Hallows. So both of these uses of the term kind of convey meanings to do with um, spookiness, fear, evil, even death. So when we read this text, Hallowed Be Your Name, we sometimes struggle a little bit to think, what's this about? And we have these slightly odd uh, ideas, perhaps, from the culture around us. Jesus' early followers would not, of course, have had that same difficulty. They were raised and saturated in a Hebrew biblical mind, and they knew that the word hallowed was related to the word holy. And when they are told to pray, hallowed be your name, they are understanding that they are declaring the holiness of God's name. And this idea of the holiness of God was central to their understanding of who God was, the God that had been revealed to their ancestors and who had made covenant with them. He was a holy God. And so the word hallowed literally means to regard as holy, to declare as holy. The prayer, hallowed be your name, is therefore both a declaration, how holy is your name, and it's a request, may your name be regarded as holy. So there's a more basic question then I suppose to ask, which is what does the word holy mean? It's used frequently in the Bible. And at its root is the idea of being separate or being apart. It's used of God himself throughout the scriptures, that God is in some sense above, beyond, different to the creation. And it's also used of those people, places and things which, so to speak, come into contact with this holy God. So in the 
uh, information in the Leviticus and the Exodus about the temple and the tabernacle. There's lots of articles there, you know, bells and, and the curtains and um, worship objects and utensils, and they're described as being holy. It simply means they are set apart for sacred use. They're used exclusively in the worship of God. They, as it were, they've come into contact with that idea of God, the Holy One of Israel. And the Hebrew Scriptures are full of this kind of language. In Leviticus, we read, Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. And the holiness of God here in Leviticus and here in the Lord's Prayer is associated with the name of God. Hallowed be your name. May your holy name be praised. The name of God has to do with his character, his reputation. It's not just a, a label or a tag. It speaks of his very nature revealed. I um, was told recently by someone I know who works in um, the uh, international development sector. They were attending a conference in a capital city uh, in the Middle East. And at this conference, the delegates were coming together to coordinate humanitarian uh, relief within this particular country, which I cannot name for security reasons, nor the individual who told me this story. There we go. At this conference, they all brought their delegate passes and their identifiers, but the person who telling me the story told me that uh, the colleague they went with, who was a national for this particular country, did not bother to bring their identification with them. They just turned up. And when the, they came to the front door, this person, who was a national of this country, just told the person on the front door what their name was. And uh, apparently it was then like the parting of the Red Sea. They're ushered in, everyone's out of the way, in they come, simply on the basis of their name. And actually, this individual was not famous. They weren't um, well-known. But their name was a tribal name, and it was a clan name. And so immediately, the person at the door knew who they were and knew where they fitted in the overall scheme of society within that country. And they were able to say, yes, they're on our side. They're one of the good guys. They're OK. We can let them in. And names in Middle Eastern societies often have that about them. They reveal identification with a, a group, with a community. They're not just tags or labels. And uh, biblical names have that feel about them as well. In the Psalms, we read, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. So praising the name of God is declaring his excellence, his characteristics, his nature, his holiness. It's not just uh, using a little label. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, is his name, says Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One who is high and exalted, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. So, hallowed be your name is a request that we might revere the name of God, that we might regard him as holy, and that his name might be regarded as holy on the earth. Mary, the mother of the Lord, sang out this great psalm, didn't she, when she went to see her cousin Elizabeth, and they were comparing pregnancy stories. And she sang this great song out, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Fascinating to think about this. The phrase that Mary sang out there, 
holy is his name, is very similar in its structure to the phrase here in um, Matthew chapter 6, hallowed be your name. Now, Mary was a woman of faith. She had a, a, a wonderful heart, uh, attitude towards God. She submitted to God's will for her life. And she was a woman of faith and a woman of worship, obviously. And uh, I can't prove this. It's just a question. Is it conceivable that during Jesus' early months and years growing up in this household, did he ever hear Mary use this phrase? She used it here when she was with her cousin Elizabeth, holy is his name. Did Jesus as a young child hear that? Who knows? It's certainly possible. We can't prove it, but we know he would have heard that phrase in the synagogues and in his household and wider family. And here, later on, as he's in his public ministry, he's using it again, hallowed be your name. It's a tremendous thing to think about if you're a parent with young children, that the things we pray over them, the things we say over them, the things we sow into them, who knows how that's going to shape them and affect them later on. The glorious, glorified church in heaven also sings of the holiness of God's name in Revelation 15. I love this song of the servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. Uh, Christians sometimes get the, this impression. They sometimes have the idea that the God of the Old Testament was really holy, and the God of the New Testament is less holy. That's not true, of course. The God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament, exactly the same. He's the same eternal God. If we are able, therefore, to draw near to God, as we have been doing this morning, it's not because God has become less holy. It's because we've been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sinners have been cleansed from their sin, and we can now approach this holy God with confidence, without condemnation, with liberty, with joy. We can enter in to the holy place. What a great work of salvation has been done through Christ. And when we pray, hallowed is your name, we are declaring God's holiness and asking that it might be regarded as holy. And when we cultivate a life like this, praying in this way, we're actually becoming worshippers. We're becoming proclaimers of the worth of God. Jesus said this, that the Father is seeking worshippers. teaches that in John chapter 4. Why does God want to be worshipped? Have you ever asked yourself that question? A characteristic which in any human being would be regarded as very strange, and yet which God himself actually, actually commands that we worship. He's seeking worshippers. Um, I can't find a better quote than this from John Piper on this very question. Have a read of it, see what you think. He's explaining why it's good of God to demand worship <laughs> from his people. If God wants to love us infinitely and delight us fully and eternally, he must preserve for us the one thing that will satisfy us totally and eternally, namely the presence and worth of his own glory. He alone is the source of full and lasting pleasure. Therefore, his commitment to uphold and display his glory is not vain, but virtuous. God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is an infinitely loving act. Do you see that? So he's saying, if God were to say, go and worship something else that's less worthy of worship, maybe, you know, the moon or science or whatever, go and worship that, give that your ultimate devotion and praise, that would be an unethical act of God. 
because he's directing people to give their ultimate love and find ultimate delight in something which is not worthy of it. But when he directs us to give our love and our devotion to himself, he is directing us to give it to that being who is most worthy of adoration, praise, delight, and devotion. So for God, displaying his glory in this way is actually for our good. We are actually giving our adoration to that being who is most worthy of praise. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. So let's look briefly then at some of the practical implications of this dimension of prayer as worship. We're learning how to pray. And as we pray, first of all, we say, Our Father in heaven. And then we say, Hallowed is your name. In doing this, we're going to consider a variety of issues, which may seem quite disparate, but the common theme for these issues is actually worship. Perhaps there'll be one or two of these that might resonate with you on your current uh, Christian journey. We're going to start broadly and end narrowly. First thing that we can say about worship is that God is the sum total of our reason for existing. So worship is our ultimate calling. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Here's the important thing. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Important verb, that we might be for the praise of his glory. We are human beings, not human doers. Yes? So our very existence is for the glory of God. That's true when we're awake. That's true when we're asleep. That's true in the totality of our lives. Our existence is for the glory of God. Worship of God is the sum total of our reason for existing. You may think, well, so what? Well, so what if you're struck down with illness and you're in a hospital bed or you're in a coma or some other terrible situation like that? What happens? Actually, you're still existing for the glory of God, even if you can't do stuff. Do you understand? So our whole life, the very way our body works, everything that's happening biologically. All of that is existing for the glory of God. So worship is not so much an activity as a state of existence. We exist for the glory of God. Um, Anyone here on Twitter? (laughs) One of the reasons I'm on Twitter is so I can discover fantastic things like this. Terry Virgo put this on Twitter recently. He said this, I believe God told me years ago that my first calling was to be a worshipper. Everything else is an added bonus. Now, everything else doesn't sound that great when you haven't done much with your life, but if you've, as Terry has, planted hundreds of churches and laid foundations in churches across nations, if you've raised up apostolic teams on five continents, if you've preached to tens of thousands of people and liberated believers into an understanding of their identity in Christ, if you've done all that, then to say, my first calling is to be a worshipper, that's really telling us something. Yes, that the Christian life isn't just about activity and doing stuff. First of all, we exist for the glory of God. Secondly, the worship of God involves our bodies. In Romans 12, well-known verses, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
In our society, there are a growing number of cultural and ethical issues associated with the use and misuse of the human body. These issues include such diverse things as the belief that our true identity may not align with the gender we were assigned at birth. Another issue on the very um, <clears throat> narrow, uh, uh, shallow side of things, uh, the use of cosmetic surgery. It's something to do with the body. Orthodontics, what's wrong with having braces? Or, maybe at a more profound level, technical enhancements to the human body for non-medical reasons. Gene therapy, neurotechnology, and the emerging concept of transhumanism. At the science fiction end of this issue, there's the um, issue of mind uploading, the idea that we can perhaps transfer our entire being into a digital format and put it on the internet, and the film Transcendence explores this theme. At a more down-to-earth level, the use of animal products in human transplant surgery falls within this topic, as does the dramatic rise in the use of tattoos and body piercings in recent decades. These are all issues associated with the body, yes? Now, for the Christian who wants to navigate their way through some of these issues, our starting point is that the body is created by God and that in Christ it is to be offered to God in worship. So, when we approach these issues, we're not approaching them just on the basis of utility or personal preference or even a sort of, a sort of semi-gnostic view that says the body doesn't matter. Rather, we're going to be asking this question, is this action one of worship to God? Am I worshipping God through the use of my body in this way? Now, asking this question may not immediately give us a simple yes or no answer, but it will at least start us off in the right direction. On a more day-to-day -day basis, I suspect most of us this week will not be facing ethical challenges about whether or not to undergo bionic surgery, but many of us will face an ethical challenge about how to direct our sexual desires and our romantic desires. Again, our starting point is worship. Hallowed be your name. So living a holy life and overcoming temptation, if we want to put it in those terms, isn't only about fighting the good fight. It is about that, Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. But living a holy life is also to do with worship. Because when we face temptation to conform to the world, we don't overcome just by clenching our fists and saying no, but more positively, we also actively offer our bodies to God in worship. As Paul says in Romans 6, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. That word Paul uses, instruments, instruments of righteousness, it could also be translated weapons. So he seems to be saying, when you're facing temptation, part of the way we overcome that is we actively offer the parts of our body to God as instruments of righteousness. So our minds, our hands, our mouths, our eyes, in the moment, and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to worship God by choosing righteousness. That's part of the New Testament uh, paradigm for thinking about this issue. John Piper puts it like this, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. That's worship. We delight in God. We find satisfaction in Him. That's the key. Worship of God, thirdly, is integral to our work. 
Now, I've had this idea uh, while I've been preparing for today. I've been seeing this um, person in my mind. Maybe it's a real person. Maybe it's just an archetype. And uh, this person is um, male. He's uh, about 22, a recent university graduate. And he's really, really zealous for God. OK, so far, so good. Yeah. This guy is uh, white. He's from a middle-class background. He's from a Christian home. And he's brought up in a um, large town or small city in the south of England, somewhere like Canterbury or Winchester or Woking or somewhere. Now, this guy is really zealous for God. In fact, if you ask this guy what he wants to do with his life, age 22, he'll tell you this. I want to be a full-time worship musician. Some of you are looking horrified, like, who'd want to do that? <laughs> but I do bump into guys like this, and they tell me this is what they're going to do with their lives. They're going to be full-time worship musicians. And uh, I just want to say this. You're not. You're not. Okay? I can count on the knuckles of one finger the number of churches in the UK that employ full-time worship musicians, right? And the queue to be employed is quite long. And you're probably not good enough musically. <laughs> Plus, <clears throat> what else do you bring apart from this? I just came from Bradley Stoke, <clears throat> and um, Matt Sital Singh, who was leading the worship there this morning, he phoned me twice this, this week just to liaise a little bit about what I was preaching on and how he could prepare worship accordingly. So he phoned me twice. He turned up at half past eight, at Bradley Stoke this morning to set up, sound check and all that. Uh, and he prepared the slides for me, because mine were a bit messy. And, um, and now he's leading worship, or he has been doing the last few minutes. And um, do we pay him? He does it all for nothing. And he's married and got a young family and all the logistics of that, and he does this at least once a month. The reason I'm saying this is because if, if you're a church pastor, you're not going to pay someone to do what Max Telsing does for free, right? <laughs> is, that, is that too unspiritual a comment? I mean, it's, it's obvious. And churches are full of people like Matt who just love God and are happy to serve him and just do it so beautifully and with such dedication. So you are not going to be a full-time worship musician. I mean, you might get 10 quid for playing the organ at... St. Boltoffs from weddings and funerals, but that's it. And the reason I say this is important because this tragic individual then does something really important. He gets married. And this lovely Christian young woman thinks, oh, well, you know, he's a lovely man of God and I do like him. And they get married and uh, she thinks, you know, he's got a few wacky ideas, but, you know, we'll be committed anyway. And then this guy sends his wife out to work to support him in his ministry. You think this, this, this does happen. This happens in churches. And uh, it puts tremendous strain on the, on the marriage. I mean, it's terrible. And this guy's just at home twiddling knobs and sampling stuff and, you know, having profound thoughts. <laughs> and his poor wife is flipping working all the time to support him in his ministry. And then she's feeling these sort of pressure, like, oh, well, I've got to release him to his ministry. 
because that's what Christian wives do, right? Now, this is a stereotype, or perhaps it's not. Perhaps you're in this room. But look, <laughs> the greatest church planter, the greatest apostle in church history was a self-employed tradesman, right? Paul just made tents and other leather goods, and he, that's what he did. That's how he supported himself. Occasionally, he got gifts from the churches, and he was grateful for them. But fundamentally, he, was, he worked for himself. And, uh, you know, if you're 22 and just think all your Christian life is going to be all about worship music and people are going to pay you for it, I, I just urge you, as best I can, in Christ's name, please don't go there. You must work. You must get meaningful work. You must be employed. You think, oh, but I don't want to. Well, go back to Genesis and start reading the Scriptures. See how God ordained it. He gave them a garden to tend and to work. Go back and do it. Go back and read Ecclesiastes, how God intends that we find pleasure and purpose and delight in the work of our hands. Go and find that. You find it. And don't just be preoccupied with this kind of ministry thing. You know, it's really unhealthy. You can serve God wholeheartedly. Please don't lose your zeal. Just uh, get a job. So worship of God is integral to our work. And don't just get a job, by the way, <clears throat> that says, I'm just going to get a rubbish job so I can just, you know, pay the bills and do the really important stuff. Not only is that terribly disrespectful to your brothers and sisters who do those jobs for decades, and you call it a rubbish job, no, no, not only that, but also you won't make enough money. Do you know how much it costs to raise a child? Um, so Martin Lewis on MoneySupermarket.com says £100,000 from age zero to age 18. So it's not including the extra costs for your housing, because you need a bigger house. That's just literally what you spend directly on their food, clothes, social, everything else. It doesn't include university fees. So, you know, if you're, if you're going to be an apostle and have five children, right, um, where are you going to get half a million pounds from? <laughs> Not by doing that. <laughs> You've got to go and do some serious work. Good. Worship of God is integral to our work. Worship of God is the framework for mission. In Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about preaching the gospel as worship. We won't go into that too much. Uh, finally, worship of God is both personal and corporate. <clears throat> Spoken and so worship is broadly defined, but also we encounter it obviously when we come together as a church. Spoken and sung worship should happen early on and at the forefront of our prayers. Pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So it's right that we worship. It's right that we come in with thanksgiving and praise, declaring the holiness of God before we start asking him for things. So it needs to be done. It needs to be done early. We do need to actually seek, uh, speak and we do need to actually sing. Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's a growing trend, sadly, in some churches for people not to sing much. And I want to encourage you to actually sing, to actually take in a deep breath and actually sing. Even if you find it a little strange at first, you'll get used to it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll find as you're filled with the Spirit, Christ becomes more and more delightful to you. 
because the Spirit makes Christ known to us, and we just love him. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's natural to praise and to, and to speak well of that that we love. We always praise the things we admire, whether it's a sunset or a beautiful view or a piece of music. We always talk about it. We say, oh, that's so great, that TV program. Oh, man, this app, it's just so great. We always speak what we like. And if we're filled with the Spirit, we love Christ more. We're just filled with Christ, and he becomes more and more delightful to us. And out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks and the, might, and the heart sings. So we do need to actually sing. We do need songs about God, not just about us. Here's a little grid. We've got a grid? So, different types of worship songs. Some which are written in the first person singular. I, me, mine, what else? My. Okay, so over there and over here, songs which are written in the first person plural. We, us, our, ours. Also on the y-axis, songs which are about our experiences. I love God, I feel very happy, I remember the first day I met you. Uh, these are all about us and our thoughts, experiences and feelings, right? Also songs which speak about the attributes of God, the characteristics of God. Holy, holy, holy. Or immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, your great name we praise. So songs like that speak of the characteristics of God more than they speak about our own personal experience of God. Now the Psalms do have songs about our own personal experiences and they do have songs written in the first person. My view is that we have quite a lot of songs in this category, you see? Now the problem with having a lot of songs in that category is, firstly, it reinforces an unhealthy, unbiblical individualism. Because for, songs form us, they shape us, they, they actually teach us, they're didactic. And so they form our beliefs. And if we're singing only songs about me and God, what we tend to then do is we tend to think of our Christian lives primarily in individualistic terms. And actually, if you sing only songs like that long enough, you know what will happen? Eventually, you'll go home from church lonely. That's not, that's not why we're here, right? Because you've you're kind of got this idea of just about you and God. And the person next to you is singing about them and God. But actually, we're not embracing that biblical paradigm that it's about our interconnectedness. So I'm nothing apart from my interconnectedness to the body, and nor are you. And the New Testament letters are written to groups, to congregations. You, together, think this way, do this way, behave in this way. It's plural, plural imperatives. So we do need songs that also speak about God's attributes and are also written in the form of us and we and our and ours. And uh, there's lots of them out there. We've sung some already this morning. So this is not a comment on today's worship time, by the way, because I wasn't here for it. So no, no pressure for any of that. I'm just making a general comment. We do need a mix. And probably in our very individualistic, very atomized age, we do well to think carefully about songs that are more communitarian in their ethos and in their mode of writing, and also that speak about the great nature and characteristics of God. We've touched on lots of different topics this morning. Time has gone, but I guess the heart of what I want to really leave with you is just this, to really be thinking about the holiness of God, hallowing his name, that all things exist for him, and that as we pray, we come not just with our personal needs or even our mission agenda, but actually we come to glorify God, that we even see our mission to help Bristol believe as ultimately 
Um, its ultimate aim is worship, as we want to see more people glorifying and honoring the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like us just to um, bow our heads for a moment and pray. If the uh, musicians would like to come up, that would be great. Otherwise, you'll have to listen to me, which won't be so great. And uh, what I'd like us to do just for a moment is um, I'd like to ask you to think about whether God's calling you to be a better worshipper of him. And we've looked at worship in quite broad terms. We could all say, yeah, of course, we want to worship God more. But if there's something particular that's kind of spoken to you this morning, and you just know actually through the word of God and through our time together, God's calling you to that deeper experience of worship, to hallow the name of God. If Terry Virgo can say, my highest priority is to be a worshiper, I think we can say that too. And that we just learn to cultivate that inner delight in God, in all things. So I'd like us just to be before God for a moment. And uh, if you know that God's calling you to become a better worshiper, he's calling you to a deeper life of worship, I'd just like you to stand now where you are. And uh, we're just going to pray for God to bless you in that, to help you.